Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, February 22nd, 2015. This is episode 1736 of the Survival Podcast. And since it's Monday, it's time for a listener feedback show. This is where you send me emails to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Make sure you put the letters TSPC, like they're a single word in the subject line, and then comment for Jack, idea for Jack, question for Jack, you suck Jack, whatever you want to send me. Uh, and then in the body of your email, make your point or ask your question in one sentence, uh, or provide your link and then, you know, make a point about it in one second. Hit the return key. And uh, after a couple of return key hits, then give me details. That will help me screen your email faster and be more likely to get on the show. Don't you wish all the shows that take call-in information and write-in information and stuff like that told you uh, how to help them help you get your content on the air? I've been trying to do that for eight years now. Hopefully, uh, it'll work out for you. Can't get everything on the air, but I do get a lot of it. Occasionally, I actually bring uh, feedback on also from Facebook and uh, Twitter and YouTube and things like that as well and answer questions from that. But email is the number one way content gets on the show, I would say. Of the content that gets on the Monday shows, 90% or more comes from your emails to me. Uh, maybe 10% in total from the comments on the blog and Facebook are the two other places. Most of the other stuff doesn't end up here. Anyway, with that, before we get to your uh, questions for me today and your comments and ideas and thoughts and news stories, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is for you, here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is jmbullion.com. When I'm looking for silver or gold, I go to jmbullion.com, and I'll tell you why. They're a small enough company that I can personally communicate directly with the president, Michael, at any time of my choosing. And that means as, uh, as someone that's endorsing them, if you ever have a problem that doesn't get resolved by their customer service, which is 99% of the time stellar anyway, I can make sure that it gets taken care of for you. And I think that's really important in my sponsors. Next is pricing. The entire point of buying silver and gold is it's the same, it's the same, it's the same. You get the same silver eagle from JM Bullion as you do from Atmex or Monex. It's exactly the same. It's the same purity, it's the same weight, it's the same design, it's the same cut. It is the same. It's like buying a Wilson basketball, whether you buy it from you know Walmart or Academy Sports and Outdoors. It's the same. That's the point. So why pay more? So why not deal with a company that's a small company, that has great customer service, that offers free shipping on all orders, and has better pricing when you're buying the same thing. Now, why silver and gold? I'm not an all-in guy. I'm not the guy that like, you need to get out of the dollar, they're going to burn it to the ground, it's going to be worthless tomorrow. By the way, give me your dollars and here's some silver. I'm not that guy. But I do know that the plan for our money is a continued devaluation through the process of inflation, which is a hidden tax on the wealth of the American people. And I know that's the case because the former chairman of the Federal Reserve said so on the floor of the United States House of Representatives while being questioned by Ron Paul. He admitted that and said, it's okay. That's the way the system works. It's supposed to work that way. Well, if that's the plan, then my plan is to make sure I have a wealth assurance policy. 
We talk about insurance a lot, but assurance is, is equally important. And the way I personally do that is I have 10% of my net wealth, roughly, in silver and gold. I recommend that you do something similar. My personal recommendations are that you consider uh, a wealth assurance program of 5% to 10% of your net wealth in hard commodities like silver and gold. And if you need silver and gold, I can't give you a better recommendation than JM Bullion. Check them out today. And remember, members of our support brigade, you do get a discount on larger orders from JM Bullion. Check the benefits section of your MSB account to learn more about that. Sponsor of the day number two today is the TSP Business Directory. If you want to do business with other members of this community, the directory is the perfect place to find them or be found by them. Every business listed in our directory is part of the TSP community. Small businesses providing great products and services for things you probably buy frequently. So doesn't it just make sense to do business with our community when you can? Hey, and when you do business with a Survival Podcast community member on the directory, please leave a review. This will help other members know who to do business with and provides feedback to help all of our community members improve their customer service. The business directory is a spam-free and feature-rich way to find what you need or to be found by those that need what you have. Check out the business directory by going to the Survival Podcast .com and clicking on the directory banner with a tab at the top that says Business Directory. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I have natural rubber and dandelions, which is actually really cool. The Watt and the Coulomb, which you can read for yourself, because I'm going to read the final one I have from Alex Shrug today. Give me liberty or give me death. Yes, Patrick Henry is born this year in Old Dominion. That is the Virginia colony. His father is a Scottish immigrant. His mother, a wealthy widow of a prominent family. He is born into the middle gentry, about the same level as George Washington. He will try to make it as a farmer with his wife and the six slaves given to him as a wedding gift by his father. But the land will be played out and the yields will be poor. So after moving into a tavern, he will take up lawyering. In 1765, he will be elected to the House of Burgess, the Virginia legislator, and jump in with both feet. He will give a rip-roaring speech against the Stamp Act. The tale of the speech will grow in the telling. The line that most people cite was probably not said exactly this way, but most people have settled on this. Caesar had his Brutus, Charles I his Cornwall. And George III, may he profit by their example. If this be treason, make the most of it. Patrick Henry, 1765. My take by Alex Shrugged. History can be fuzzy. In 1775, Patrick Henry made another speech that most people remember more clearly than his treason speech. The Virginia legislature was arguing about whether to mobilize their troops in defense of Virginia against the mounting British threat. Patrick Henry's speech in favor of mobilization was not written down at the time. It was reproduced years later after his death from the recollections of others. Memory tends to smooth out the rough spots. Most of the name-calling was edited out. Whatever he actually said, he swung the vote in favor of mobilization. Years later, people believe he said the following. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. My take on this is going to bother some people because... We've all heard the good of this so many times that it's ingrained in our minds as an example for us and how we live today. And whenever anybody says anything negative about the Founding Fathers, a lot of times people get their jimmies all rustled. But there is an irony here that, that I can't help but notice. 
A man who was gifted with slaves is so enamored with liberty. And what he fears is being treated like the slaves that he owns. There is a lesson in the fact that our founders were not perfect men. It is not, we should just discount everything that they gave us. It is that we should be able to discern for ourselves that which is right and that which is wrong that they left behind in their legacies. I think liberty is the most important thing that any human can have. I think that liberty is so precious and so fleeting and so under attack at all times because people aren't comfortable with other people truly having liberty unless they choose to express it the same way. That's why we have so much government and regulation. I saw a post on Facebook today that on the surface, without critical thinking, made a lot of sense. It said if God was for big government, there'd be more than Ten Commandments. There'd be thousands of them. My response to that was, have you ever read Leviticus in full? There are thousands of laws that come from religion. Religion is not an argument, unfortunately, against large government. The only successful argument against large government is, do we really need it? And at what cost are we willing to purchase either our freedom or our slavery? Back to Patrick's words, uh, while they may have been paraphrased, are accurate. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased with the price of chains and slavery? And that is exactly the position that we're in today. Are we so enamored with having things the way we think they should be that we will sacrifice our freedoms and liberties to have them made that way at the expense of others? Or are we willing to face the ugliness, the messiness that comes along with freedom and liberty? Freedom's not clean. Freedom's not neat. Freedom's messy. But so is slavery. So is statism. I heard an argument on Facebook also recently about this whole white male privilege thing again. And you know when I see people pulled over in cars, if it's a white guy, there's like one cop there talking to him. And if it's a black guy, there's six people around the car. I'm sure that's an overgeneralization. But I'm also aware of the fact that in some places it happens. And my response was, yes, statism is entirely unfair, isn't it? Because why is that person being harassed by five or six cops? Because the five or six cops can. That's why. We're not privileged that we're not having our, our, our rights taken away from us. That's not a privilege. That's not a privilege. It's not a privilege. The problem isn't that some people have a privilege others don't. It's that it's not a privilege at all. And the people that, that are not treated fairly are not being treated fairly. And the more things change the more they stay the same. My take by Jack Spierko. Uh, next, I'd love to remind you about the Member Support Brigade. If you want to help support the work I do, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more there, and uh, you can sign up right there. You'll get a lot of great stuff. How about discounts on over 60 vendors for stuff you're probably buying anyway that over the year will put the money back in your pocket? How about a, a, over uh, $200 worth of free downloaded eBooks Right off the gate, you get that. And then supporting the show at about 20 cents an episode is what it really comes out to. So when you're done with the show, if you think that was worth 20 cents, consider joining the MSB. With that, I want to get right into today's show now. Um, 
I've gotten this email from a bunch of people. Uh, some just send it. Some say, what would you do? Uh, I see a lot of comments on Facebook about it. It's uh, a, a small island is asking someone to come work there to, uh, to be an agricultural advisor and to uh, help them uh, become more self-sufficient when it comes to food and stop spending so much money to bring food in. The, the problem as I read it, is actually monetary in nature here. Uh, that if it wasn't so expensive to just bring in food, they wouldn't be so worried about this. But this is a unique kind of place. Let me read the article to you. Trinidad de Cahuna is a tiny overseas territory of the United Kingdom, smack in the middle of the South Atlantic Ocean. It is searching for an agricultural advisor, someone to help it avoid insolvency by reducing its costly reliance on imported foods, According to the islands, want ad more than expertise is required. Quote, you have to have a very resilient nature, end quote, says Administrator Alex Smitham, the island's top official. The stark facts to the east, Tristan, is about 2,800 kilometers from Cape Town, South Africa. To the west, Rio de Janeiro is about 3,340 kilometers away. The nearest inhabited island is St. Helena, 2,430 kilometers to the north. This literally is the middle of nowhere. The island has no airport. The only regular transportation is an old fishing trawler from Cape Town that makes the trip. It takes seven days one way, maybe eight times a year. And the rough seas mean the harbor is open for only 60 to 70 days of the year. Even medical evacuation can take months, Mitham says. In a world where you can fly anywhere within 24 hours, this is significantly a step beyond. Best to forget about the Internet. The island's residents share only half a megabyte of bandwidth. We can just about send an email if we're lucky, Mitchum says. The only TV channels, all three of them, are provided by British Forces Broadcasting Services. You do have to appreciate that you're really stepping back maybe 100 years to maybe a quainter and easier time, uh, Mitchum adds over the phone to his Tristan office. Uh, nature is the biggest attraction. Volcano dominates the land, rising to more than 2,000 meters. There are yellow-nosed albatrosses and rockhopper penguins. The fishing is great, and the only village on the island has a pub. The residents are, after all, British. There are also a golf, there's also a golf course that doubles as a cattle pasture. Local hazards include lack of greens. The golf club notes on its webpage, exposure to gales and rounded volcanic boulders, which if hit will project balls randomly often into the sea. The island is looking for an educational advisor and a mechanic. The job, the island is also looking for an educational advisor and a mechanic. The job ads describe locals as fun-loving and friendly. Mitham notes they rise before dawn and tend to uh, to tend to potato patches and livestock. Total of 300 cattle and 500 sheep on 400 hectares of poor grazing land. So that's 300. I'm gonna. I don't do a lot of uh, English metric conversion here, but I'm gonna do this one. Okay, because it's just important to get this in your head. So 300 cows and 500 sheep on about 800-ish acres of land. It's actually a little bit more than that, but it's considered poor quality grazing land. Uh, this is a little over two to two two acres to the hectare, so it's probably closer to like a thousand, like somewhere between 950 to a thousand acres is what we're talking about for this pasture. That's supporting 300 uh, cattle and 500 sheep, but it's poor. Keep that in mind. Some also work for the lobster company responsible for 80% of the island's economy. All land is community-owned. It's a harsh climate. If you don't work, you don't survive. 
The island is named after Portuguese Admiral Tristeo de Cujana, who landed in uh, 1506. The British military established a garrison in 1816 and left a year later. A Scot named William Glass stayed. He was later joined by settlers from England, Holland, and the United States. Two Italian families arrived via shipwreck in 1892. Today, all of Tristan's Uh, Tristan's uh, permanent residents are descendants of seven families who arrived during those 76 years. In 2008, the island then-administrator warned in a radio broadcast of impending bankruptcy, noting $3 million in debt. Income taxes were introduced for the first time, 10% for those making more than $3,000 a year and 13%, the highest rate for anyone making more than $6,000. Mitchum has proposed a 10-year plan to make the island largely self-sufficient in food and energy, most of which are now imported. Islanders want a U.K.-trained agriculture advisor who can plant and sustain fruit orchards, While improving the health of the animals, the job comes with free accommodation and travel, a negotiable salary, and a minimum commitment of two years. All the job notes, the time frame is largely dependent on shipping schedule. They don't call it the most remote inhabited island for nothing. Okay, so people have asked me, what would you do? To be bluntly honest, I probably wouldn't take the job, and not for the reasons you think. It's remote, no internet access, can't do my podcast. I'm assuming that If you're asking me this, I would be in a place in life where I would be willing to go do something like this for two years, which in some ways I think would be really amazing and interesting. I'm putting aside that I wouldn't leave my wife and family for that long and that they wouldn't want to go with me. Uh, I'm assuming that I would be available, and then I would be just deciding, do I want to do this? And my gut is no. My gut is no. My gut is to actually make this work, there's probably going to be have to be radical change For a group of people, uh, a little less than 100 people that are permanent residents, about 200 people somehow seasonally, 276 I think was the number, 267, that, that's it, um, people that are there at one time or another that are some of the last of the freest people on planet Earth. And despite being isolated, probably know this. And any outsider that comes in is going to have a hard time winning them over to actually do anything other than what they say they want done. Okay? In other words, I don't think they're desperate enough to actually listen to the advice that they're going to get yet. I think what you're going to say is, what we want you to do is, here's the animals, make them healthier, make the pasture better, but they all live here this way. And here's where we want an orchard. Maybe that's not where an orchard should go. And do you have a totality of the understanding of your plight yet? Do you, do you, I mean, to, to do something like this, it has to be very, very holistic. The other reason I wouldn't personally do it is I don't think I'm qualified. So what I'm going to lay out here are some ideas that I would, would if I had a team of experts, sound check it off of them and then use them to get this implemented. I think this is bigger than one person, for instance, as well. So the first thing I, I, I did was I tried to find more information, and it's difficult, right, to find a lot of information on how things really are. So I ran an image search to try to gain as much understanding of how things are. Because if you're going to make a change in an organization, in a place, in a community, in a company, whatever it is, the first thing you have to do before you suggest changing anything, even if you're 100% sure you're right, is absolutely understand the way things are. So the way I see this place right now is it's actually a significant amount of grazing land, more than it looks like. You're talking, again, almost a 1,000 acres. 
um, a community of people who are already doing a tremendous amount of annual gardening, a tremendous amount. Yet, the imagery that I can find of the gardens tells me we are in a situation with significant fertility issues. The plants they're growing don't look as healthy as they should. You're on an island with a with the the primary industry is sh- is fishing. Okay, we got all the nitrogen we need. You've got cattle and and sheep that exceed, okay, that exceed the amount necessary if properly managed to provide all the meat that this this place could ever need for the people that live there. And, and significant surplus for the quite limited tourism I would imagine that they have. So I'm already thinking maybe there's too many animals on the island. Maybe we're not, instead of raising so many, we need to be raising less, more efficiently, at least for a time. Um, but we also have all of this waste from these animals, and clearly it's not being processed, from what I can see, to provide sufficient fertility for all of these gardens that are there. So my first step would be not what they've asked me to do as far as planting orchards. We'll get there, okay? My first step is going to be to look at the entirety of the grazing pattern of the animals and to determine how these animals are being grazed. And I bet you it's not high rotational frequency holistic management which is, this is a brittle landscape. It is the only way to manage livestock. It is, again, the only way to responsibly, ethically, morally, and effectively manage livestock is in a high-rotational grazing pattern. Now, the problem with this is much of what we would normally use to do that um, is electric fencing. So we're going to have to go to a situation where Maybe we're using some electric fencing, but, and we can do solar for that and all. And I don't think if you're going to try to fix something this big, that if somebody tells me we can't come up with five, six, ten solar chargers, standalone units to, to charge, uh, electric tape, right? So this is the nylon looking tape with the wires built into it. You just run one line, right? Through these things you stick in the ground and you pull them through and they're like a circle on them, that type of thing. Then I'm, I'm, I'm all the way out. I'm all the way out if you can't do that in this day and age, even there. The problem is, how many of these places are you going to go to stick that thing in the ground and deal with what I deal with, which is it won't go in the ground. So we have to come up with ways to mount that, and what we need to do to make this work is we need to begin to first provide better fertility to the grazing land and look at the nutrient cycles that come from the grazing land and move the cattle and the sheep in a leader-follower system to a degree because I know the sheep are grazing higher up on the land than the cattle. And there's a time when that makes sense, and there's a time to swap that down and bring them into more of a leader-follower system. And we need to think really carefully about how much of that top-side grazing we're doing with sheep, especially if we're just letting them run around, which is probably what's going on. So we get that into place, and we use a laneway system to move our cattle. And that means in the evenings, or at least for certain times, we actually pull the cattle into the laneway for a period, and we hold them there overnight. And we allow them then to move on to the next paddock. 
That is to concentrate their manure in the laneway so they can be collected and used for fertility in all of these gardens that are already there. So the first thing I want to do is just like if you said, I want to make my home more energy efficient, put solar panels on it. Well, let's fix all your leaks, your insulation, everything else first. So first, let's just tighten up what you have. Okay? Because all of a sudden we can produce healthier cattle, healthier sheep, more meat, more wool if they're doing that. Everything gets better. Then we can start to say, and and that's necessarily we do that all first. We get the plan in place to do that all first. Because then instead of planting an orchard, what we're actually going to do is we're going to define the pattern for the landscape on this, on this thousand hectares, which circum, you know, kind of circumnavigates from what I can see the town. And the town is full of walled gardens. They're built with, with rock. I know we have lots of rock because they're using it. So we can begin to define some of that pattern. We're not bringing heavy equipment in here. We're not swaling shit, right? This is not a place to do a lot of swaling anyway. I can tell by looking at it. This is, this is a, this is a maritime, cold, temperate climate with, with extremely erosive conditions. There may be a case for swaling certain things in a position like this, but the cost is so prohibitive, even those, if they exist, are out. So what we can begin to do is define the pattern, some based on contour, some based on flow, and begin the installation of rock walls that work in conjunction with laneways and electrotape and begin to build actually some type of a system to hold electrical ta- electric uh, tape. So again, this is a thing that holds livestock in into laneway situations where portable stuff won't go in the ground. We need to build basically small rock jacks to hold those. So that's just a, a rocks that hold up the implement instead of the implement going in the ground. And that's going to let us get our cattle in a flow. We're all, what we're going to begin to do then is improve the fertility of everything. So why have this little patch way over here that's an orchard, and then we have our cattle just wandering aimlessly through this thousand acres? And No, no. Now we begin to define the borders, and we begin to place the hardiest fruit trees for the climate that we can find along the borders, and we're keeping the cattle off the trees with the laneway. And we're, we're going to we're going to do we're going to probably put in a lot of small orchards in and around the town inside the walled gardens with small, highly cultivated fruit trees, but our, our larger production we're going to put out on the range, so to speak, with the cattle in a civil pasture model. What that's going to do is multiple, and we're not just going to put productive trees in there. We're going to produce, we're going to find a tree that will grow or three trees that will grow in this climate that produce nitrogen, that grow fast, and that we can use for windbreaks. And we're going to put those along those patterns and borders within that total pattern of the system. And we're going to get those trees up as quickly as possible. I can't do this in two years. It's another reason. It's unrealistic. And I'm going to get that, those trees up, and I'm going to begin to temper the effect of these of the wind erosion and salt on the pasture with that as well. All while the cattle are improving the fertilities of the soil. I'm going to plant a, a major mix of mass-producing trees, and again, we got to figure out what works there. But things like apples seem to make sense. Okay, and we'll talk about how some of this stuff plays against the totality of the economy here in just a minute. But I, I'm planning a mix of stuff that's for the people and for the animals. Because I'm going to let some of the mass go to the animals. I'm going to improve their health and nutrition by not having them being 100% on grass. 
this looks like a climate that probably would be able to produce hazelnut. Um, maybe chestnut. I don't know. I don't know that for sure. If so, I'm going to look to those. If not, I'm going to try to look to some hard mass nut tree that will grow in this climate. There might not be any, but again, there's a whole lot of it depends when you don't know, but that would be the basic pattern. Now, here's, I would be looking to actually shift a lot of this nation's dependency beyond just what You know, oh, well, we'll have fruit, so we won't have to import fruit. Yeah, that'd be nice, okay? Um, one more thing. I would look at how we can use the rock in this climate, the natural formations, to build halfway below grade greenhouses, reducing the need to bring in outside material, and I would start growing something under plastic here. That's another input. You have to bring it in. But seven times a year, a boat shows up, so you can get that. And I, I would try to do quite a bit of that to extend the annual cropping. And I would be doing composting inside those structures with all that wonderful animal waste and fish waste to generate heat and extend their capabilities even further, thereby extending that fertility back. I would be looking at biogas. Um, you got all these cattle scrapping everywhere. You got that many cows. You got plenty to increase the fertility of all the gardens, all the pastures. You got plenty of surplus. We should be doing biogas digestion here. And that's producing gas for energy, and it's producing uh, fertilizer as well. We're not even losing all the fertility by doing that. I would say that we need to be looking at getting some level of fertility from the fish and what have you, though. I'll bet you there's no fish processing going on here. This is a place where the, 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 you know, they fish, and the fish goes away. Right? This is not doesn't look like it's set up for a lot of processing. Home processing, sure. And I'm sure a lot of this I'm sure there's a lot of composting going on right now, et cetera, but is there? This is a place where you probably don't want to mess with poultry. Um, the grain input alone is going to make it not very functional. There may be some small amount that could be done with chickens to begin producing eggs. It's only 76 permanent residents and 200 people total. If you could find the right breed that would be largely able to subsist on local browse and fish meal, which is high protein and very good for chickens, uh, and other products that could be grown, then maybe you could do that. But I want to fix the health of the ecosystem, which is probably very unhealthy first. Okay, I want to look at ways to hold and catch fresh water uh, and create some freshwater ecosystems as well within this system. But the biggest thing I want is I want to block wind. If you don't block wind with, with trees, you've got problems you'll never fix, and I want to contain and control the, the cattle. The way I see it now, you have very large paddocks and cattle just ranging around these large paddocks that are mostly formed with rock. We need much smaller, more density control. The cattle hit a spot, they move, they're not coming back. Uh, possibly for a year. With that much land, we could do that without reducing the headcount of the cattle. Um, I also want to look at how can we expand this island's income from outside sources, what is readily available that could be marketed that would be a relatively uh, easy product to ship because there's so little shipping and sold for an extreme premium 
uh, that's probably right in front of your face and you don't know it, you don't realize that somebody else would actually pay money for it. And I would bet that possibly putting in a small solar collector uh, for, for solarizing sea salt would be an extensive uh, opportunity for this town. Uh, I would then have all of the marketing for the product and the brand taken care of off-island somewhere in, in England, since this is a British territory, London, what have you, a uh, small office that would market this product as the is sea salt from the most remote island on the planet. Oh, God, transportation. Okay, look, look. <laughs> the, the, the global distribution system is such that Uh, a, a thousand or two thousand or three thousand or five thousand or even ten thousand pounds of salt a year being added to it won't do jack diddly crap to the existing nature of the distribution system. That, that it's all going to be adjacent to transportation that's happening anyway. It's going to be additional stuff that's just going to take up a little bit more space on holding ships and whatnot. But, That could probably be sold to yuppies at ridiculous prices at little gift shops all over the world. That would create an income source for the island. The way this island is being run, all of the property is communally held. So national revenue, if you want, or territorial revenue would then go to the public good. This would offset the cost of life on the island for everybody. So this would be an ownership stake. That this would be a community-owned uh, production. And is there anything else that they can do with that? I know people would say they're probably doing way more money than that in fish, but are they? Is that money really coming to them, or is it just companies that run fishing boats that these people work on? You know it's the second one. Where this could be something wholly owned by the community that's been there for hundreds of years. And I doubt they're doing it. I don't see any evidence based on every image that I could find that I would do. And, and there's so much more. And there's so much I'm missing. And there's some of my ideas would be like, when you got to the reality on the ground, oh, that's not going to work. But there's a, a lot that, that, of it that could work. I mean, another thing we're going to look at is, what can I start doing with simply espaliers uh, of trees? There's, there's walls of rock everywhere in this place. I have a, a cool, temperate climate. Just by training trees and possibly maritime uh, capable of, of life grapes, And other things like that. Kiwi. Arctic Kiwi is going to tear up a place like this. No problems whatsoever. What can I do with vertical spaces? How can I utilize the microclimates that are already there? And, and I, I think what you'd run into is, is you'd take a year just to win these people over with social, what are called social design considerations to have enough buy-in to do all of these other things that would slowly change the entire demand structure. I mentioned apple trees and how that could have a bigger effect than you would think. Well, I'm sure that it's pretty expensive to get an apple in this place, right? I, I, I really am. I, I'm, there's not a lot of trees here. There is. You can see why they, I mean, they're on the right track in some ways with what they're looking for. So you get an apple in, you eat an apple, you make an apple pie, whatever. But what else is there's a pub on the island. So what are your grain imports really if, if guys are drinking beer all the time? So see, I would try to move the entire island economy to more of a group of cider drinkers, which you tell them, hey, guys, this is very traditionally British anyway. So you can produce that on the island. Now, you're five to ten years before you have sufficient output to start to make that conversion, but that should be part of the design. That should be part of the plan. And, and a realistic you know, time frame to, to win buy-in from all the local guys that go to the pub 
to have to, to have a scrumpy instead of a, a black and tan that was shipped from halfway around the world. Okay, I mean that's just that's you know. So is the population open to that? Do they do they want to preserve their way of life sufficiently to slightly alter some of the things that they have preconceptions about? Because here's what I see for the guy that goes in and does this. When I was hired into Sage Telecom, I, I was actually thinking about kind of doing my own thing online back then and just quitting. Just quitting all before I worked with Neil Franklin, with, with Franklin Spirico Media and all those other things. To, to just, and I'm, in some ways I'm glad I didn't because Neil's brought so much to me uh, as a friend and a, a co-worker and, and a partner that it was probably worth it. But I, I thought about walking away. The offer came in from Sage Telecom, and I looked at that and said, I can do that in my sleep. You know, They want all these programs developed and rolled out and everything. And so I went in, I interviewed, and I said, they said, what are you going to do on day one? And I was like this, and I'd like, here's the first week, here's the first three weeks, here's the first four weeks, here's the first two, two months, here's the first three months. This is what it all looks like. I know everything to do, I'm ready to go. They hired me like just, oh, God, yes. You're the only person, they said they interviewed 78 people for the job. 78. And I was the only person that actually knew what I was going to do when I got there. I ended up doing about 10% of what I said I would do. Not just due to the fact the company was almost immediately gone into a position of being purchased uh, by, by another company, but because I couldn't do it. The bureaucracy was such that, oh, you can't do that. Oh, you can't change the website. You, you just hired me as your director of, of, of Internet marketing. Changing websites is what I do. Oh, every change has to be approved. Okay, here's the first thing I want to do. Here's the metadata structure of the site that needs to be changed. Why? The fact that you don't know is why. Right? I mean, it was impossible to actually do what needed to be done. What they wanted me to do was run banner ad campaigns and shit like that that don't work for their type of company. And the people I interviewed with weren't the people with the authority to say no. They were, they, they were definitely people with the authority to say yes to the idea, to the concept, what have you. But the, 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 the technical side of the company had complete dominance and control over the site itself. So in this case, the government completely has the authority probably to say, hey, come in and do this. Here's the job description. But the, but the citizenry is like the IT department that I had in, in my way. They have the authority to say no. And in many ways, they should. So it takes a special individual to get in and work that social design. Long answer, but... I think you can probably learn a lot from that, guys. Let's take another one. Um, this next one is a news piece that somebody sent me from a small town in Texas. Instead of reading the article, as you can see, I just did a, or you can hear probably, I did a workshop over the weekend I'll talk about in a bit. And uh, whenever I do that, and I have, you know, I had like 20 people here, I think, and I spend a, uh, you know, a full day talking to as many people as want to talk to me. I strain my voice. So voice is a little strained, and I'll just play the news story for you, and that'll save me from having to read it. Imagine waking up, turning on your faucet, and seeing this. Now that's what happened to Crystal City residents this morning. Now they're under a boil water notice because of that black water. Audrey Castoreno spoke to residents who say they got no warning from the city. The boil water notice here in Crystal City is still in effect. Today you could pick up one of these notices at City Hall or find it on Facebook. But residents are upset because those notices were published after the fact. Wednesday night, some Crystal City residents were shocked at what came out of their faucets. For a while, it was just kind of like a light, like a light, light 
black, and then I let it run more, and for some reason, my hotel filled up just pitch black. It smelled like rotten oil. Residents had to go to Facebook for answers. There, the city posted a boil water notice this morning. They said that some residents knew, but for some reason, why didn't other residents know? I would have thought that they would have gave notice two or three days ahead of time. Well, a few months ago, we had a similar issue, and, and they did a pretty decent job in letting us know. This time, it caught everybody off guard. And being a mother, you know, I have an elderly father. Um, it, I, was, I was upset because uh, nobody said anything. Nora and June are aware of the lack of leadership in Crystal City, but still convinced more could have been done to inform residents. I'm more than sure there's more than enough people there to figure out some way or somehow to notify not just some residents, but all residents as to what was going on. We don't know who is at the realm right now issuing out orders or sending this, these samples to get checked to let us know. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. We have spoken to TCEQ who says they are investigating the water issues here in Crystal City. As far as when the boil water notice will expire, we're waiting to hear back from city officials on that matter. Reporting from Crystal City, Audrey Castellano, Ken's 5, Eyewitness News. Now, someone from Crystal City did travel to San Antonio today to the TCEQ facility to check that water sample to determine what's in the water and if it's dangerous. Okay, I have uh, a few interesting things to say about this, I think, uh, a few takeaways to, to, to consider. Uh, number one, I am not defending the city for falling down on notifying people really here, but I do kind of want to point something out. Exactly how are they supposed to make sure that every resident of the town is aware of a boil water advisory? Did they put it out too late? Maybe I don't know. I don't have enough information, but let's let, because what's being said is two different. There's two different complaints. One, they did it too late. Okay, if they did it too late, they did it too late. Okay, but two, they weren't effective enough in letting people know when they did. Okay, hold on. How are they supposed to do this? Are they supposed to send police, uh, call all emergency responders, and have them go door to door? I mean, what mechanism really exists to make sure that every single person knows? Even if they put it out on radio and television and things like that, it's up to people to actually listen to and pay attention. I don't think putting it on TV was much of an option because I doubt this this place has true local news. I bet their local news is on cable and it's out of San Antonio. This is not as remote as the island we just talked about by any means, but it's about 120 miles to the uh, south-southwest of San Antonio, the closest other city of any size is Corpus Christi, Texas, which is significantly further. So that's where they're getting their news from. Their local news stations would be something like that. Maybe somebody with a really high-up digital antenna pointed the right way could be picking up directly. But they're probably on uh, you know, cable TV, and then they, they have a local affiliate that's closest uh, provided to them. So you don't really have local news. Now, radio, sure, you could let all your local radio stations know. Did they do that? I don't know. I don't know. And if they did, did the radio stations carry it? Yeah, and how many are there? I mean, I've been through parts of Texas where there's a little town and stuff like that, and there's there's two kinds of music. There's there's country and there's western, and you can pick, pick between two of them, and it ain't the country that you hear on local radio and most other places. And I've been through places like that where you can't pick up a channel. You can't pick up a station. Does Crystal City have its own local radio stations? I'm going to bet they don't. 
Because 100 miles, they're probably picking up radio from San Antonio. All right, maybe Corpus Christi. Um, so exactly what communication mechanism exists to make sure every resident's told immediately when something's wrong? You know? Uh, we have boil water advisories around here that I never hear about. Uh, I don't care because I'm on a well. But, you know, just down the road we had one a couple of weeks ago. And my wife heard about it and told me about it. And she heard about it through kind of the, you know, happened to be listening to the news when it came on. We don't religiously watch the news. It's not the government's responsibility to, to make me religiously watch the news. I don't want them doing that. I don't want them in that business. So there's a certain level of personal responsibility here that I hear these residents that are complaining shirking. Either you're not paying close enough of attention or you think that it's the government's responsibility to let you know personally every little thing that might affect you. Okay, and that doesn't mean that your your city government didn't do anything wrong. God knows I'm the last to defend governments, but I hear that. I hear that I'm entitled to be catered to attitude amongst these people. And hence, none of them are probably making it a routine practice to filter their water. Because if the problem is we we've issued a boil water advisory because the water started coming out of the faucets and the tanks and everything black, but we don't know what it is or if it's dangerous. That tells me they found out when you did, basically. I mean, that's a fundamental reality, okay? You turn the faucet on, it's black. That's how, the that's how the mayor of the town found out. He turned on his faucet, it was black. Or somebody called him and said, hey, the water coming out of my faucet's black. He turned his on, it's fine. Look at it, it's right. Oh, shit, it's So that was the means by which people found out when the water came out of their faucet black. Okay, here's a little thing to clue you in on this. Something makes your water black. Whatever did it was starting to do it before your water came out black. So even if the city had immediately, as soon as the first person saw one block, uh, drop of black water, screamed to everybody, hey, 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 they did. They went up and down the streets. Attention, attention, citizens of Crystal City, please boil your water. Attention, like that, right? They did, they went up, like, 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 it, like it was it, it, Ebola wrapped up in SARS bomb, dropped on the city, and they went out to like a hazmat level. Danger, danger, right? If they'd done that, then there still was water with some level of contamination from something in it before it was visible. So this is why I say you should own a Berkey or another quality water filtration system, and at least the water that you eat with and cook with should go through it, whether you're on a well, whether you get your water from rain catch, whether you get your with, with some other level of filtering, or whether you get it from a city or a municipality. You should do that. Because any means of acquiring your water has the potential for something to contaminate it, and generally by the time you find out, you've already been ingesting it. So that's another personal responsibility. People don't feel that they should have to be personally responsible to ensure the safety of the flipping water they drink. This is because we have become idiots. We, the government has made us so safe, relatively safe, that you can go out and drink water out of a faucet anywhere in America most days of the week and not get sick, which is a good thing. But because of that, we've become inherently dependent on it like it's a right. We have a right to water delivered right up to our asses and it to be perfectly safe all the time. And if anything goes wrong, somebody, our congressman, should call us on the phone and personally tell us this. The next thing is, After all is said and done, they have no idea what's wrong. They don't know. Is it dangerous? Oh, it's black. Doesn't look good. 
but is it like it'll kill you? It's bad for you? Um, it's not going to kill you or put you in a hospital, but there's something in it that could long-term be dangerous to your health, some sort of carcinogen or something, which means they never know. They never know until something happens. It's not like they found, like, well, we, we test once a week to see the quality of our water, and we, so they don't even have the capability to figure out what's wrong with it. They have to, they have to get somebody from San Antonio to come in and tell them what's wrong with their water. So at the local level, they're not even able to determine. So they could be drinking shitty water any day of the week, and if it doesn't change the color, the flavor, the smell, then no one would even know. And it could go on for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks until somebody started to get sick, until something went wrong, before anybody would figure it out. And all of this can be mitigated for a couple hundred dollars worth of technology, like something like a Berkey water filter. Or I, Berkey is my sponsor. Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, Directive21.com is my sponsor. I love Ber I own one. I use it myself. That's why I recommend it. There are other water filtration systems out there that are, I don't necessarily think as good, but good enough that it would mitigate almost any of these risks. Americans should be in the habit by now of being able to filter their water for a variety of reasons, including additives and shit that they put in our water that I don't want to drink, like fluoride. Okay, But fluoride helps your teeth. Yes, and suntan lotion, suntan lotion helps you not get sunburned. But I don't drink it to protect my lips. So I don't drink fluoride to protect my teeth. I use fluoride toothpaste to protect my teeth. And I drink water without fluoride in it. It is insane what we do in this country with, with fluoride. So if, if you've been on the fence about, you know, ensuring the, the safety and quality of your water, because while you're not exactly in love with the idea, your tap water safe enough, think about it a little bit harder. The next thing I would say is if you're on a well and you're thinking, I don't have to worry about this. I have beautiful artisan, artesian spring water or whatever. Maybe you do. There's still potential. There's still potential for something to be wrong with your water. And filtration makes sense. And it'll probably make your water taste better. And what I like about the Berkey filters is they don't remove mineral solids. So it's not like you create a sterile water to drink. You, you, you still have the things that you really want in there. This is why if you're using it to filter fluoride in on city water, which is what we used to do, you actually need a second set of bottom filters for it because it won't filter out fluoride as a mineral. But it'll fl filter out all the toxins and heavy metals and everything else like that. So... Even those of you that are like, well, I don't want to take the minerals out of my well, you know, a Berkey or something else that filters in the same type of technology uh, protects that. If you're using rainwater, I don't care what you're doing to filter out solids and stuff like that. It's being held in a tank. I mean, just filter it before you drink it, man. I mean, really. Um, there's just something to be said for understanding that as the one of the two most important substances in your life, to maintain your life and your health, water and food, that you should be personally responsible for the quality of your water. But we don't expect... What the hell do Americans want to be personally responsible for if we won't step up and be responsible for our water? But I pay my water bill to the government. They take my taxes, and they should do it perfectly. I should and are capable of. They've demonstrated that, that they're incapable of doing this. 100% of the time. So you need to assume that sooner or later, wherever you live, if your water is provided to you by government, they will fall down on their ass and fail. 
and then they'll tell you about it after they find out which by a time you and your family have drank the water. Let's take another one. All right, the next one's an interesting one, a totally different subject, so we keep going with some diversity in today's show. It says, Jack, you recently said there are better ways to save your cash other than stuffing it into a mattress. Would you please expand on maybe your top five or so favorite or best ways to put cash away and keep it safe from the boogeyman? Take care, Jack Richard. Okay, this is the first thing I'm going to say. If you're afraid that your government is going to take your money, you're, you're in general, in general, in one of a couple camps. One, you're involved in legal activities. Two, you're paranoid for no good reason. Because you're paranoid, the first one, too, for good reason. It is not that the IRS never seizes people's money. Uh, because they look at an account and they say, this looks like structure because they moved uh, $7,000 three times in a row and they're trying to avoid a uh, reporting at $10,000. This stuff happens, but it, 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 it's, it's generally uh, a minimum. So when I talk about saving cash, the first thing I have to explain is the reason I'm saying is don't put all your cash in your mattresses. I'm not talking 100% about saving cash in Federal Reserve paper notes. Okay. But my first place to save cash, my first way to save cash is, dun dun dun, in Federal Reserve notes, uh, bills, paper money, stuffed in your mattress. That is my number one advice for saving some cash. Just not too much of it and just not all in one place. If you're going to save cash in any significant quantity, one of the most uh, important things I think you can do is get a good fire-rated floor safe or sleeve safe. This is where a professional installation company comes into your house, takes a coring drill, and drills a hole down into your foundation. This is a good place for silver, gold, and other valuables, too. They put a sleeve in there, sometimes as long as three feet, and it's basically attached to the foundation of your home. The safe itself is nothing but the face of the safe. It lowers down into the tube or, or square sleeve. They're either round or square, usually. And then when, when, you, when you engage it, four large bolts, bigger around in your thumb, engage into the concrete. Getting something out of there is all but impossible. So if you're saving more than a few thousand dollars, you might want to consider the investment in an object like that if you want to store it in your home. The good news is it's relatively safe to be stored like that in outbuildings as well if they're concrete foundations, especially if you were to build some mechanism that would kind of make them difficult to find and hidden in the first place. So that is one option for keeping cash. A basic firebox, you know, if you keep a couple thousand, three, four thousand dollars in cash around, a basic firebox is good for that. If I didn't have the safe option, I wanted to keep, let's say, uh, $10,000 in cash. I wanted to do that. I'd break it up into like three, three, and four, and I'd get four or three, three different boxes, and I would strategically hide them in different places so that only a, a portion is only ever at risk. They sell for about 60 to 100 bucks a piece. It's small insurance for that amount of cash. So these are different ways that I would say to hang on to actual physical cash. Um, I don't think it's a terrible idea to have a safe deposit box in a bank that you do not have a bank account with. This makes it a little less likely that if anybody ever locks up everything, that your financial records, that they'll actually do that one too. 
under the Patriot Act, a safe deposit box with a banking institution is now defined as a financial relationship. But when government first puts the pinchers on people, they generally do so with the obvious, and they're less likely to even know that's there. And certainly it would be likely you could go access your money and your property prior to them getting to that, especially if you don't have an account with that bank. So I, I think that safe deposit boxes are actually a very viable way to keep some of your property. And I would definitely advise that you keep some cash in, uh, in one as well. They're also quite useful if they're close to home, uh, from a small branch bank where you could get to very quickly if you needed access to that property. If you are a type of person who maintains two residences, it may make a lot of sense to also have a, a safe deposit box in a similar situation very close to your duplicate residence in another state or town or nation or whatever it is uh, with some property there as well and enough to get you by for a few weeks beyond just cash. Um, you know, pretty much you can keep just about anything legal in a safe deposit box. So that's another option. So now we have a home uh, storage of actual cash, the mattress money. It's a little more secure than the mattress itself. And we have safe deposit box. Uh, I also have no problem with keeping some of your, 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 your most liquid cash possible in the form of U.S. government debt, U.S. Treasury bonds. Yeah, I'm opposed to governments borrowing money, but they're going to do it anyway, and it's a very safe form of investment. The, the, the yields are extremely low right now, but at least it's something, and it's yet another way to diversify a relatively liquid cash holding, and you can buy 90-day bonds, 90-day paper as the banks call it. And the way to make sure that you have a significant portion of that money available relatively quickly any time of, uh, of the year that you need it is to ladder them into a, a three-fold purchase. So you, what you do is take a third of the money you want to commit to this and you buy 90-day U.S. bonds with it. And at day 30, you buy another third. And on day 60, you buy another third. And then what happens is every 30 days, a third of that money is up and available to, to take fully liquid with no penalties or anything, and you can choose to either take it or to reinvest it. And if you're going to buy additional bonds, you time your buys to coincide. So if I'm going to buy an additional 500 bucks uh, in three buys over the next three months, then I buy at my maturity date so they match. Or I could even start to ladder in between. I could have... It gets confusing, though, but you could break up 90-day bonds into six cycles, so all, no money is more than 15 days away if you're that concerned. But this should be other money, right? You shouldn't ever need that money this second, right? There should be this is this is like the next. So this is like the the one, two is one, and one is none. Three is for me. Four is even more. Five keeps you alive, right? That this is that type of thinking. We're we're, we're staggering out. Another place I have no problem keeping some money is in PayPal, which I think would kick this whole thing off. And what I said is I'm not comfortable, you know, with $20,000 floating around in a PayPal account. But, but beyond your general needs of PayPal, especially if you are someone that does business online and takes a significant amount of money in through PayPal, you'll keep four or five thousand bucks beyond your things that you pay your bills out of your PayPal account with or whatever. Nothing wrong with that. 
another pocket for money to go. It's not really a bank. It's not FDIC insured, but it's not quite treated the same way by government that bank money is. Next, I have no problem with the bank. Um, I have a, a savings and a checking account with the bank that I do business with primarily. So a, a savings account in that bank makes a lot of sense. The next thing I think makes a lot of sense is set up a second bank account with a second bank that's just a savings account. Don't have a checking account with them, just a savings account. And then set up automatic deposits And you can do this, this is not like you go fill out a form or something. You can do most banks now with online banking. You can transfer in between your bank accounts. So then what you do is you say, I can save an extra $25, bucks, $50, bucks, whatever it is a month that I want to save in a way that it makes it just less likely I'll touch the money. So you have Bank A, which is your primary bank, and you say uh, every second of the month deposit $25, $50, $100, whatever it is, dollars to this other bank account. And it just does that. Now you have two save savings accounts. And one is actually feeding the other. So it's a, it's, a, it's a smaller account, probably. So now you have these different pockets of, of money. Another place you could save cash and have a lot of flexibility with investing it when you feel the need to is you get something like an E-Trade account and you just hold it in money market there. So it gives you a little bit better interest rate. Um, if there is a great opportunity to, to, to make a trade on an ETF or a stock or a commodity, it's just sitting there waiting to go. It's sitting in a brokerage account, so it's outside of the, the, the banking system, at least in a direct relationship. So I, I think that's another valid way to keep some cash. Next, Bitcoin. Um, Bitcoin is, from a standpoint of just true security, If you use something like Coinbase and their vault system, the most secure way to keep your property as far as is spendable cash. But it's subject to the volatility of, of, of the, the market. Bitcoin goes up and down in value all the time. So you have a, a risk associated with at a time that you might want to use your Bitcoin that it's gone down significantly from when you purchased Bitcoin and put it into your, your, your vault. But this is why I'm such a fan of Coinbase and their vault system. So I have a Coinbase account, and, and I'll take Bitcoin for MSB. So some people choose to buy it that way. So then uh, Bitcoin comes into my Coinbase account. It builds up. And about the time it ends up with, like, one extra Bitcoin, I just move that Bitcoin into the vault. It's very easy to put it in the vault. You just say, I want to move it in the vault, and boom, it does it. Okay. Now it's in the vault. To get the money out of the vault, this is what happens. You say, move my money out of the vault. It takes 48 hours. When you initiate that, You get a text message. That text message gives you a code. You enter that code. Now you get an email to your first email address. You have to click a link and say, yes, I want to do this. And then as soon as you do that, you get an email from, uh, from, from them to a second. You have to have at least two email addresses to do this. And you click that link. And that says, yes, I want to move this money here. Okay. Then the, the next thing that happens is they send you an email saying you did this to one of those emails. And then they send you another email to that other email saying telling you you did this. The next day, you get an email that says it's pending and that you did it to both emails. And at the end of the second day, you get an email that says it's done. It's now out of the vault. For a hacker to get that, they need your phone. They need to be at least able to intercept that. They need both your email addresses, and they need your login to get into your Coinbase account in the first place. 
which they need your phone to get into because it uses an app called Authy that when you try to log in, says, okay, you haven't logged in today. Um, you didn't say you didn't, you didn't want it to be stay logged in for 30 days. So here's a code on your phone. So now give us the code to go with the password, and the code changes every 10 seconds. And you don't get in without it. So in spite of the volatility of the exchange rate with Bitcoin, a couple thousand bucks in Bitcoin, it's another thing that you can access from anywhere in the world, extremely secure. Those are the types of things I mean when I say there's better ways than just a mattress. I'm not actually throwing the whole mattress idea out. Again, don't use just... If you have money and it's in, in more than a few hundred bucks and it's not inside something that protects it from burning if the place catches on fire, you, you've really got a lot of, of wealth at risk that you should have at risk. Right? So at least just a good firebox. Um, a little tip of note, too. When you get to a point where you're storing significant amounts of value and if somebody were to get into your house and rob it, they might want to get away with some of that value. If they find something like a firebox or whatever, in general, that tells them they, they, that's, that's what they want to grab and get and go. Right? You, you can only spend so much time robbing a house. You've got to get the hell out. So you might eventually decide to get one of those strong boxes and fill it up with like rocks and heavy stuff. So it's really heavy. So the person's like, oh, it's the mother load, baby. It's silver and gold. And it's pretty much worthless. And you don't need the best quality one for that. Just one that it's easier to pick up and run away with than it is to try to bash open while they're there. And this means you want to put that in a place where if somebody is ransacking your house, they're actually pretty likely to find it. And then you put your other storage mediums in places that they're less likely to find. So when they find that and they go, oh, I got it, and they run away with it, they get a $60 lockbox and a bunch of rocks or heavyweights or pieces of scrap lead for your bullet casting or something like that. I'm not saying I do that. I'm just saying it might not be a bad idea. So hopefully that helps you kind of thinking about that. Again, the people that say, well, you know, the government bonds are risky because if the government goes bad, if your government bond is not worth the numbers on it, your dollar bills aren't worth the number on them. It's the same thing. People get tripped up over that. I don't want to be in treasuries because if, if something happens, then they're not going to be able to pay that debt. Then your dollar bill won't be worth any money. Then cash, see, so that's why we don't do everything in cash either. That's why we have silver. That's why we have gold. That's why we have tools. That's why we create equity in our lives. That's why we create social capital, experiential capital, right? Cultural capital. We don't just create financial capital if we're designing our life in a balanced way. Also, keep some on your person. Always have cash on you. Never be the way that I don't have any cash. Um, that saved my ass a couple times just from like large blackouts and things like that. Um, and it, it may not be a terrible idea to have a couple hundred bucks squirreled away somewhere in your vehicles. Just like a place, like even if somebody ripped out the upholstery or whatever, they probably wouldn't find it. Um, just a couple hundred bucks. Um, you know, it's something if somebody did find it, it's not the end of the world. And it's more likely you would need it, it would be there, than somebody would find it. There's a lot of places, I don't really want to start talking about them, but there's a lot of places in a vehicle that you can put money, uh, you know, let's say, um, I don't know, 200 bucks in 20s, you know, maybe two 20s and five, or, or two 50s and, and, and five 20s, and uh, tuck it away. And it would be real, if you needed it within a, a minute or less, you could get it. And if you if you didn't need it, you could be rest assured it was probably there. And if you have two vehicles, that's you know 400 bucks. It's like an emergency slush fund cash. 
um, that might prevent you from doing something stupid with a credit card someday. And then you just replenish the cash. And I know people are going, man, how do you have so much money that you have this problem? Well, if you get debt-free and design your life the way we teach you, that's what happens. That's what happens. At first, it's like a couple thousand bucks, and you're like, I'll just put it in a strong box. And then it's like, man, I got you know, eight, nine, ten grand in a bank account. That's got crosshairs on it if the government ever gets greedy. And I'm still being able to, maybe I'll leave it there, but I'm still building up more cash. What do I do with it? Nice problem to have. Nice problem to have. Anyway, let's go ahead and uh, take another one. Here's what I find interesting, but not really explaining the, the total picture and the problem. So this is from Matt. It says, hey, Jack, I saw this article and thought of you. Basically, it says that while few Americans, few Americans identify as libertarian, many hold libertarian views. And while these views, socially liberal, fiscally conservative, are considered inconsistent by mainstream, that's only because it's politically advantageous for Democrats and Republican parties to set up a binary divide. Uh, while the conclusion is unsurprising, it's always nice to see numbers back up what you suspect. So let me read this article to you and, and try to explain how it's not quite as clear-cut as the people writing it want to make it, I, I would say. Um, there are a few libertarians, but many Americans have libertarian views. The New York Times, uh, Paul Krugman, assessing the presidential candidacy of Rand Paul, asserts that there aren't very many libertarians in the United States. Most Americans, Krugman says, take clearly liberal or conservative positions on both economic and social issues. Here's the graph Krugman drew to represent his claim. Uh, and I'm not going to try to explain a graph in, in text. It's correct to say that few Americans identify as libertarian. Only 11% of the term libertarian describes them well. According to 2014 Pew Research poll, okay, I want to stop right there. Then why do libertarian candidates never even poll at 14%? Because even the ones that say they are, aren't. I'm going to keep reading. Uh, nor do very many Americans self-identify as socially liberal, but economically conservative. Just 3% did in a 2012 Gallup poll. That means when people say they're libertarian, they're not. So you got 3% that when you ask them, would you call yourself socially liberal and fiscally conservative? No. Are you a libertarian? There's like a seven-point thing in there that says no to that, and then says, yeah, I'm libertarian. No, you're not. Okay? Um In fact, even fewer Americans, just 1%, fall into the category Krugman calls hard hats. That is, people who are socially conservative but economically liberal. So that's the reverse, an, an anti-libertarian, I guess. Uh, so they <laughs> uh, But how people label themselves is one thing. Americans sometimes leave a different impression when polled about specific issues. Often their views are reasonably heterodox and not well represented in one-dimensional political spectrum. Take two issues that are as emblematic of a split between liberal and conservative viewpoints, gay marriage and income equality. <coughs> if, Krug <coughs> Excuse me. Um, if Krugman is right, you should see very few Americans who are in favor of same-sex marriage but oppose government efforts to reduce income equality or vice versa. As it turns out, though, there's quite a number of them. About four in ten Americans have inconsistent views on these issues. The General Social Survey... Ask Americans whether they favor or oppose gay marriage. It also asks them to rate on a seven-point scale whether the government ought to reduce income differences through higher taxes on the rich and income assistance to the poor. Here's how Americans respond lined up in the poll. People who favored gay marriage and favored income redistribution were 34%. Those are your liberals. <clears throat> People that opposed gay marriage and opposed Um, wealth redistribution where you conservatives at 25%. Uh, 
Okay, think about that for a minute, guys. Um, people who were in favor of gay marriage but opposed income redistribution were at 22%. That number is almost as high as the conservative number, guys, and it is absolutely a libertarian position. People that were opposed to gay marriage yet favored taxing the wealthy and redistributing income, the hard hats, made up 20%. That means people that are for wealth redistribution in this country are 54% of those polled. And people who oppose wealth distribution, 47% of those polled. So, see, I get something out of this nobody else does. That's uh, clearly, clearly the majority of people in this country are actually for redistribution of wealth. They're for bigger government. And let's, let's look at what percentage of people are for bigger government, and I'll go back and read the rest of the article. If you are in favor of wealth distribution, you are for bigger government, period, the end, infinity, go out. There is no argument. So 54% right there. If you are against wealth distribution, redistribution, but you want the government deciding who can and cannot get married and enforcing its will on people, you want more government. I do not. I just believe in Christian values. Then promote Christian values. Don't ask the government to do it on your behalf. Because they might promote other values you don't like if you keep letting them get bigger. So that means a full, so what, 75 and 49% of Americans in this poll were for more government in one form or the other. Only 22% as libertarians were absolutely for not increasing the role and the power of government. So let me keep reading. The most popular position is 34% is to favor both gay marriage and income redistribution, but 22% of Americans are in favor of gay marriage and opposed to government efforts to redistribute income. Another 20% are opposed to gay marriage but favor income redistribution. There's some relationship in these responses to these issues, but not much. They're far closer to being randomly distributed, 25% of voters in each quadrant, than perfectly correlated. I've thrown out the responses that were neutral on both issues, so we get a two-by-two -two matrix that matches Krugman's. So does that mean that Paul has running room after all? No, we're not that optimistic about his chances. This is obviously an older article. Anyway, I'm, I'm not going to read anymore. You want to read the rest of it, you can. But the, the, the point is, that's being attempted to make is that there's more libertarians in America than you think there are. But I don't believe that because I would think even of these 22% that on this particular thing that you think is like a killer way to test this, There's, there's probably a lot of people in the 22% libertarians that don't think we should legalize marijuana. Or they are actually in favor of wealth distribution if you would redistribution, if you phrase the question differently. That we should have higher taxes on the wealthy to benefit the poor is one way to phrase wealth redistribution. But a lot of people, if you said we should expand our efforts to improve the quality of our schools by funding them more more fairly. Would say, oh yeah. Okay, that, that's still wealth redistribution. So if you actually favor spending more money in any department of our government, you favor wealth redistribution. If you favor any new laws, regulations, etc., that actually interfere with the lives of people who don't have victims... You are not only just for 
wealth redistribution, but larger government and more powerful government. And this is the point that I keep trying to make to libertarians and anarchists alike. We are not the majority. We're not even close to the majority. We are a tiny fragment of people who actually believe in liberty and freedom enough to be okay with other people doing things we don't like. Because that's what freedom and liberty actually are. And I had somebody email me today, and he said he agrees with a lot, he's learning a lot, whatever, but you know, I really must not have considered this political landscape very well, and there are ways we could be working. There's two primary ways. Number one is to put small uh, government types in office and then hold them accountable. Okay, first of all, you don't have the people necessary in this country in an electoral process to put actual small government people in office today. Number one, it doesn't exist. This attempt to make libertarianism look more popular than it is tells you that we are surrounded by status. And the, and the 22% is overly optimistic. Okay? That, that's, that's what it tells us. The next thing is, there is no mechanism whatsoever for the American people to hold their elected officials accountable to keep their promises in office. None. None at all. But Jack, every two years, four years, we have elections, and senators stand election every six years, and congressmen every two, and presidents every four. The method of accountability is elections, because they get voted out of office. Okay, to hold someone accountable... They actually have to have fear of what happens if you invoke your accountability. First of all, you're divided enough that the average ass clown in office today is going to get reelected even if their, their approval rate is below 50%. Okay? Period. They're going to get reelected anyway. Especially at, at the office of the presidency and the Senate. Just look at the, look at the track record going back 100 years. So... The accountability, even of itself, has such a low risk for most of these people. They're not; they, they wouldn't have a fear of it if there was a reason to fear it. Number two, someone does six years as a senator and or two terms. They get reelected one time as a congressman. And they do get held accountable, and the voters get mad and throw them out and replace them with somebody just like them, like a shark's tooth. One pops out, the next one pops in. What horrible, horrible future awaits them? Over 75% of them end up working as lobbyists and making over a half a million dollars a year. So in our current system, there is no way whatsoever to hold them accountable. It doesn't exist. Number three, if you elect a person of absolute sainthood to the United States House of Representatives, pat them on the butt and tell them to go off and keep all their promises, they're going to show up on day one and one of the party leaders is going to come out to them and hand them a bill. This is part of the party due system. And it's going to say something like, you owe the party $270,000, and you can't do jack diddly crap until you pay it back. Okay, where do I get the money? Here's a list of donors. Go over to our telemarketing facility and start calling donors. By the time they pay their $270,000 that they owe the party to be able to actually do anything in Congress, like sit on a committee, sponsor a bill, co-sponsor a bill, like exist. Anything other than an up-and-down vote on laws. They might as well not even show up. There's nothing they can do. No one will work with them. It's how the system's set up. They have to go do that. Now, after you've done that, you kind of have some favors to pay back, don't you? 
So then you pay back a couple little small favors that don't seem that big, but they lead to other opportunities. And now you want to co-sponsor a bill, you need half a million dollars. I don't have half a million dollars. That's easy, Congressman. Back to the place you go. Pretty soon you have your staffers doing it for you as you kind of build up your war chest. And all of a sudden you can start buying sponsorship on bills and stuff. This is how it works. This is how it works. And lobbyists come in and say, you know, we really need this to happen. Everybody that's in, we're going to make a $1,100 contribution to this uh, this quarter, and it's exchanged right on the floor. If you go to definingthemachine.com, you'll see John Boehner caught red-handed doing it years ago for the tobacco lobby. So you can't hold them accountable. You can't find the right people to get elected in the first place. The money necessary to run an election a campaign for an election at the federal level, even for Congress, is extensive. person gets there can't do anything without going along to get along. If you vote them out, they get a half a million dollar a year or better job. There's not, So the whole, thought, the whole thought that in today's society, with America the way it is, we're going to elect small government conservatives or small government people or small government libertarians or whatever fantasy you're, you're, you're wrapped up in and send them to Washington and hold their feet to the fire – you know, or whatever other bullshit term talk radio tells you, and you're driving on your car, nodding your head like a big dumb jackass, believing these people that are very good liars, right? And most of them even believe their own bullshit. I used to believe that at one time, too. Remember, I'm a guy that voted for George Bush the first time he ran for president. Not the old man Bush, either, if they came out of the Reagan era or whatever, you know. That year I was smart. I voted for myself. Absentee ballot, right? But... I, what I'm talking about is the, you know, the Bush the second, right? H, George W. I voted for him, and I, I was really important. I sat biting my nails. Oh my God! Don't let Al Gore win. Oh. So I used to buy into this. So I'm not insulting you when I say this, but I'm just saying I've woken up to reality. When I was a little kid, I believed that when I came out and there were, you know, eggs and candy in my basket on Easter Sunday, that a bunny brought it to me. There's a point that I figured out it doesn't work that way. Okay? Well, I, this is time for you to stop believing in the Easter Bunny, okay? It doesn't happen. His second alternative was a convention of the states. A convention. We need a constitutional convention of the states to put restrictions on the federal government. And by the way, the polls say that with term limits and a balanced budget amendment, it'd be a slam dunk if we got together, okay? First of all, it was going to be a slam dunk when California decided it was going to require manufacturers to label GMO foods. And then a few billion dollars got poured in, and all of a sudden the election went the other way. Because that's how easy it is to change people's minds with money. So do you think money would back term limits? Do you think money would back a balanced budget amendment? Or do you think money would scare the shit out of the sheep who would back down away from it? I think you'd be more likely to have a weakening of the Second Amendment right now if you had a convention of the states because because 88% of the people in this country in one way or another are for more government I think it's very likely you would have a, a, a weakening of the first amendment if we had a convention of the states right now I think a convention of the states right now would be a disastrous thing for the liberty movement because they would fight it all the way until it happened and they would do the same thing the republicans did with the tea party Co-opted. And everybody in government that's been wanting to screw you harder for so long would figure out how to make campaigns to convince yourself to support things that would result in you being screwed. 
If you're going to do anything politically, you got to do it at the state level under the Tenth Amendment and tell the United States to shove it up their ass and defend that. And that's even difficult. But at the national level, there's no solution in the ballot box. I know you want one. I know you want it to be true. I know you want to believe that the movement, the libertarian movement or the anarchist movement or whatever it is that you think is important, the conservative movement, the democratic socialist, whatever one you want to pick is, is, is advancing every day and getting more and more support, more and more people. The reality is statism is, is pretty damn stable. That most people want statism. Most people are, 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 without their knowledge, on some level, worshiping at the altar of the state. They believe that government is good, as long as it's their kind of government. And I know some of you that are conservative Christians write me and you get very, very upset with me, or just conservatives in general, that this is like against your faith, especially that's why I bring up the Christians. You can have any faith you want, and I will lay down my life to defend your right to it. If that's not good enough, frankly, you can piss off, okay? I mean, seriously. If me being willing to risk my life to defend your ability to practice your own faith unmolested is not good enough, if you instead wish for me to, to risk my life or to use my energy and my passion to, to make others follow your beliefs, you can go away. Because that's not what your faith teaches. That's, that's, so at, at that point, it's not even what I think. It's what your book tells you. But this is where we are, America. This is where we are. And this is why I choose, personally, to work outside the system. And this is why, if there's anything I'm going to do politically at all, it's going to be at the, at the local level and at the highest level, the state level, because right now everything else is a fool's errand. You're probably going to end up, I mean, I'm looking at this and I just can't believe this. And in a way, it proves that I was right. All the way back in 2008, I said, you're going to have this ass clown Obama for two terms. He's going to take a dive by the end of his second term. He's going to look like a, a, an incompetent fool. And the country is going to be fed up, so fed up, they are going to want and they are going to demand a strongman Republican. Somebody is going to be able to get away with doing shit to the American people that no Democrat would ever get away with. And they'll, and they'll be cheered into office. And for the first two, three, maybe even the whole first term, he'll be cheered while he does the very things he promised not to do. And now we're looking at Donald Trump with a real chance to win. I mean, this is... <laughs> If you start to, to, to just do a little bit of math right now, that's where the smart money is. Jeb, the graceful tortoise, withdrew from the election. Okay? You know it's because, hey, maybe my 7% will go to, to Cruz or Rubio, and it's, this disaster can be averted. And there's already pressure now. There's pressure on Carson. Dude, what are you doing? You get, get out. Get out of the race. You're screwing stuff up. We can't have this. The establishment doesn't want Trump. I think, I, I, I legitimately think, that unless something unique happens that makes Cruz look more attractive, because I don't think there's anything that can make Trump look, I don't think Trump can shoot himself in the foot at this point. He's already done a hundred things that should have done it, and he's like Teflon Don. So unless something 
earth-shattering happens, I think a lot of the votes that I even thought would go to Ted Cruz start going to Donald Trump. And I, I, I heard it today from a person on Facebook. Flat out said, we conservatives no longer concern ourselves with whether the candidate is conservative. Because all the conservatives that we sent to, to Washington didn't act like conservatives anyway. Now all we're looking for is someone that will clear out the snakes. Misguided as hell, but spot on. That explains the Trump phenomenon to me. Republicans are so pissed, so disillusioned, so angry, and you should be, that they will take whoever they think they can win that isn't one of them. Here's the problem, guys. He is one of them. And he either plays the fool really well or he's incompetent to do the job. Put him in there anyway if you want to. Watch him trample your liberties and convince you that it's a good thing. Because I think you have Trump versus Sanders, Trump wins. I think you have Trump versus Clinton, Trump wins. In this climate, at this point, and at this time in history, I really do. And I think, I'm going to go out on a limb here, I think Bernie Sanders is going to win a Democratic nomination. I think in the long run, in the end, I think that's the direction of the Democratic Party. I think that they're happy to have a socialist to vote for. And I think that the young voters in the Democratic Party do not trust Hillary Clinton, nor should they. And they're too uneducated to comprehend the economics do not work under Bernie Sanders. Interesting times that we live in. But don't make the case to me that this nation is just a bunch of repressed libertarians, that we really are the majority. We're not. This nation is getting exactly what it's asked for, more government and more fighting between the factions, the two mafia families in government, more twist and pull, and more victimization. And the people in power are just fine with it that way. They like it that way. Because as long as we're fighting with each other, we're not really paying attention to what they're doing. Behind closed doors, they're best friends. George Bush and Bill Clinton are best of buddies. They really are. Chelsea Clinton is great friends with one of Donald Trump's daughters. This is this is all a dog and pony show. This is all a joke. And you've been had, America. In the words of George Carlin, it's a big club and you ain't in it. To finish up today, why don't I play George since my voice is fading and I'll, I'll come back. But warning... This is going to even include some words that Jack doesn't use usually on the air. But the most astute examination of the politics of this country that I've ever heard came from this one piece by the late, great George Carlin. And again, I'm going to say one more time before I play this. It's about the next three minutes. If you're offended by the F word, I'm telling you it's going to be there a bunch of times. Do not listen to it. Okay? I, I seldom play things like this. But again, I don't know of a person who has more succinctly summed up how screwed the American people are by the oligarchy and the government that they put in place. This is downright vulgar at times. You have been warned. It runs about three minutes and 30 seconds. If you want to jump ahead, do so now. Please do not complain. I will ignore your complaints because I can give you no more fair warning than you have just heard. And now, George, tell us the truth about our government. 
But there's a reason. There's a reason. There's a reason for this. There's a reason education sucks. And it's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The real owners, the big wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They've got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interest. That's right. They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table and figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers. People who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime, and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your social security. Security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club and you ain't in it. You and I are not in the big club. By the way, it's the same big club they used to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe. All day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged. And nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. Good, honest, hard-working people, white collar, blue collar, doesn't matter what color shirt you have on. Good, honest, hard-working people continue, these are people of modest means, continue to elect these rich cocksuckers who don't give a fuck about them. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't care about you at all, at all, at all. Yeah. You know? And nobody seems to notice, nobody seems to care. That's what the owners count on, the fact that Americans will probably remain willfully ignorant of the big red, white, and blue dick that's being jammed up their assholes every day. Because the owners of this country know the truth. It's called the American dream, because you have to be asleep to believe it. Hopefully nobody's too upset because you have nobody to blame but yourself. When somebody says over and over and over again how something's going to be, and you don't like that and you listen anyway, it's your own damn fault. But I will say this. To a degree, that is vulgar. That is vulgarity. And that is, in spite of the fact that I curse, I believe it is something that I avoid on the air. But there's a reason that that is vulgar. It is not just shock value from a comedian attempting to be funny. Because George Carlin knew how to be funny by telling the truth, and he knew when to be vulgar. He knew when to be vulgar to make a point. He knew when to be vulgar to drive home a point. And he knew when to be vulgar because the concept itself that was looked at as okay was vulgar. 
This is why a comedian like George Carlin had decades of success coming back time and time again to do successful things. And a comedian like Andrew Dice Clay that was vulgar for the purpose of vulgar fizzled out after one vulgar thing. And he tried to do something more vulgar because it was all he had. Those of you from the 80s know what I'm talking about. So Carlin was vulgar here because the concept of government stealing from its people and owning its people is vulgar. And this is the problem that Americans have taken this as just the way that it's supposed to be. We're like slaves who say, hey, if they let us go, how will we feed ourselves? That's what we've become. And then we are, we are so misdirected and so, so blind to our chains that we argue with each other over which person should be in charge of our chains. That's what we've become. And I know many of you are a little tired of hearing this today because you're like, not me. Well, those of you that are actually not that way, those of you who have actually created liberty in your own life, those who are actually committed to liberty for yourself and for your children and for their children, those of you who have really figured out that the government is not out for you, on, you know, to help you on either side, that the dichotomy is false, those of you who have figured that out, you need to understand it too because it is the thing that ties you back to the matrix and holds you. A belief, but yeah, it doesn't have to be that way. It does have to be that way. As long as the system is the way that it is, it does have to be that way. You could say that a building's on fire and children are going to die in that building because the fire is so horrific. You want to say it doesn't have to be that way. Well, once the building's on fire and fully consumed, it does have to be that way. We can build a new building that won't let that happen to it. That would give us options. But if you can't get in there, you can't put the fire out and the building's on fire, just because you know it's awful that somebody's in there screaming for help and going to die, doesn't mean that just because it's awful, it's not the way that it is, and it's not, it's not something you have to accept. You do have to accept it. And other people, I'm the, I'm the guy, I'll run in there and you'll, you'll get burned to death. And at least in this political theater, this ass clown circus, all you'll get is your, your beliefs crushed and your faith In, in what you believe in crushed, and maybe that's what you need. I've been told by some of you, you're so jaded. You're so jaded. Well, of course I am. Of course I am. You know why I'm jaded? Because everything I told you has happened, has happened. That's why. Everything I told you would happen did. The last election, when I didn't vote, I heard people go, Abe, hey, they're so upset with me for it. So upset with me. You're a surrender. One guy called me a surrender monkey, whatever the hell that is. Okay? Now, The case I laid out was, me voting won't change a single election that I would vote in. The Republicans are going to win every single office in my district by more than 10%, and they did. And I said, Republicans will take the Senate, they will increase their majority in the House, and they, every promise they've made about fighting Obama and stopping Obama, they will sell you out on because they had already begun laying the groundwork to do it. And what happened? They sold you out. And then the conservative hope, the conservative hope of Paul Ryan handed the reins. And was the first thing he did? He sold you out. Yeah, I'm jaded. And not because I'm a Republican, okay? But because, I can, because I'm not a Republican. Because I'm not a Democrat. Because I can see so clearly the lies. I have no need to make excuses 
for one side or the other. I have no reason or no need to apologize for one side or the other. I have no need or no reason to look at one side and say, yeah, but what were they supposed to do? Keep their word? Not take money from big interests and then be beholden to them? Do what they said they were going to do? You know, people in our government keep their promises when they're easy to keep. They really do. They always keep the promises that are easy to keep. That means they keep the ones that are meaningless. You know, you can have House representatives say that they're going to go in and vote to repeal Obamacare. It's easy to keep that promise. It's easy to keep that promise when you know it won't matter. It'll just be a little little, little gold star on your card with the people that pay attention. That's all that it's going to be. It doesn't matter because it's not going anywhere. But to actually use the power of the Congress to defund Obamacare, to defund the government's initiatives, and hold hold the, the, the next uh, branch's government's feet to the fire, that's something that could have been done. That could have been done to keep their promises, but that wasn't easy. So they broke their promises. They broke their word. They didn't use every means they had available to keep their word to the people that put them in office. So yeah, I'm jaded, because I know that's what Democrats do too. I know that's what every elected official that goes to office at the federal level is going to do, Because they're in a burning building, and the only way they can stay alive inside that burning building is to do what the people in control of the building tell them to do. So yes, I am definitely jaded. My question is, why aren't you? The only way we'll ever change this nation, actually toward more liberty, is when at least half of us are jaded. We're jaded to the point we don't trust you, we don't believe you, and we're not going to let you anymore. Right now, there's not, of a, not, not, of, not, not, of a, not enough of us to not let them. We're too weak in numbers. We have no power inside their system. So we build, work, and develop outside their system. That's what we've got to do. That's the only thing we can do. That's the only future that we have. If you want to get political, do it in your state, do it in your county, do it in your, your town, do it in your city. And you're still going to find, you're still going to find that there's a lot of places where there's nothing you can do. I heard from a guy recently that ran for the school board, wants to keep his promises and realizes right now they, they have, they're going to either raise property taxes or they're going to have to cut pensions of, of employees from the school. What do you think is going to happen? Be honest. We're going to cut teachers' pensions? Really? You think so? Go ahead. See if it works. Oh, the poor, can you imagine the campaigns? And they're in that position now, and there's not a way out. All of these schools all across the country are leveraged to their teeth. So go, go run for school board and see if you can actually make a fiscal difference. Go ahead. Go decide you're going to change the curriculum. And watch when the federal, the federal money that, that's contingent upon doing things a certain way goes away. Watch how quickly everybody caves. But try anyway. At least maybe you can get it done there. That's what we need. If you're going to have a political solution, that's what we need. The, to, to pull this beast down, it needs the death of 10,000 cuts, not even 1,000 cuts. But I'll tell you, I can cut deeper and faster. Remove yourself from systems of dependence. And win over the people around you by demonstrating a better way. The reason I give that advice all the time 
It's the only advice that I actually believe is worth giving anymore. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. What do you think you're doing? You call this a room? This is a pigsty. I want you to straighten up this area now. You are a disgusting slob. Are you listening to me? What do you want to do with your life? I want to rock.